Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it, it is Victory Lane. Today on episode 93, we got a packed show for you guys. Not only do we have a way back segment that we'll get to in a moment, not only do we have a NASCAR Cup Series team owner and repeat guest on the show, Matt Tift, we also have a race to preview, so that deserves a reggae tone if I've ever seen one. The Bush Clash coming up this upcoming week. Well, even though it's not this week, it's the next week, but it's in the next seven days, so it's in the next week when you're listening to this from Daytona International Speedway. Not a points-paying race, but that's fine because race season is upon us. <sighs> we made it, everybody. Take a nice deep breath because the offseason is over. But before we get into Matt and our wonderful chat that we had together earlier this week, 93, it's a number that hasn't had too much success in the Cup Series in NASCAR, but there are some interesting stories behind it, including why Dave Blaney drove the number 93 car, and you remember when Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s steering wheel came off and he steered the steering column with his hand and it cut him up a little bit? Well, imagine that happening back in the day with no power steering in general. And having to wheel those heavy-ass things around? Let's hear more in this week's Way Back. Thank you, Duve, and welcome everybody to today's look back at number 93. 413 cup starts for the 93, but no wins and not a particularly distinguished racing history for the number either. You may remember Dave Blaney driving the Amico 93 car for Bill Davis Racing from 1999 through 2001. Blaney was a heck of a wheelman, and the paint scheme for that car was pretty sweet, but its performance, not so much. Did you know, however, the number for the car was picked to promote the brand's premium 93 octane fuel at the time? I did not. A lesser-known driver who wheeled the 93 for several years in the 1950s was Ted Chamberlain. Funny story for anyone who's ever griped about their power steering going out. How about trying to steer a car, let alone a race car, with no steering? Chamberlain did. He was racing his 93 at Dayton Speedway in Ohio in May 1952, without power steering, by the way, because it hadn't been introduced yet. When, with 120 laps remaining in the race, his steering wheel broke off. Did he park the car and call it a day? No. Instead, he somehow found a way to use what was left of the steering hub to literally muscle his Plymouth around the track for the remainder of the race. He finished 13th out of 15 cars that day, 36 laps behind winner Dick Rathman, but he finished. What do I keep telling you? They were different times. And lastly, for today's honorable mention, we recognize Ernie Gearson, driver of the 93 Spare Mint Husker Morocco 
in the Cars movie franchise. He was nicknamed Giddy Up by his fellow racers because of the undersized 300 horsepower engine with which he started his career. Gearson competed in the infamous 2006 finale at the Motor Speedway of the South. Like so many others we've chronicled, he was taken out in the accident caused by Chick Hicks. Kachiga, Kachiga. But only suffered minor damage and was able to finish the race. That's all for this week. It doesn't get old, does it? Back to you, Doof. Thank you, Dad, and thank you, Mom. Yes, I, I cannot get enough of the Kachigas. The, the fans want more, so we will get more of them. We already had a good old reggaeton to start the show, so let's dive right into interview time, or as I should say, interview time, with Matt Tift, who is the co-owner of Live Fast Motorsports and the number 78 Ford in the NASCAR Cup Series. It's my second time having him on the show. As I said, he's a recurring guest, which I'm very thankful for and happy about. And he was fantastic, as always. And I feel like we're a little bit relatable to each other in a certain respect because we've devoted our lives to NASCAR, albeit differently, of course. But we're also only 24 years old, so we kind of have that underlying thing that's going for both of us. And this new venture for him into team ownership, it's a big deal. And the, he and BJ McLeod, they're not planning on being here for just a couple years. They are going to be here for the next 10, 20, 30 years, as you'll hear him talk about. And we touched on a lot of topics with Matt from their charter situation. He explained that because it can get a little confusing, I'll admit. His epilepsy diagnosis, why that was really important for him to get that out in public. His unlikely relationship with BJ McLeod. And some fun stories in between, including 33, count them, 33 missed calls from his senior prom date. Won't want to miss that one. Without further ado, here is really nice guy all around who really has a good thing going for him. Hopefully the first of many times you'll be hearing from him on the show as a team owner, because you're going to be hearing a lot about him and BJ for years to come. Here is Live Fast Motorsports' Matt Tift on Victory Lane. Joining me today is a former driver, but now look at him all snazzy with a little dress shirt going on in BJ McLeod's office. It is Matt Tift, co-owner of Live Fast Motorsports in the 78 Ford in the NASCAR Cup Series. Got to feel pretty good to hear that now with Daytona coming up here in less than three or so weeks. You're a Cup Series team owner, and it's official. It is. Look at this. I got, got this right here. Wow. World's best. Entry level employee, right? I would there, say so. so. Taking the taking the cake there. <laughs> <laughs> Did BJ get that for you? No, I bought it. I found it in Charleston, so I had Good. to do that. I found a an X wing fighter metal um, welded thing too. So Sweet. it may be his office, but I use it more than him. So I'm personalizing it to be you know more Matt and less BJ as time goes on until we're building a new shop up <laughs> for the Cup team. Um, so when that gets finished, I'll get it in my own um, office. But until then, here we are. Good. Good to hear. Do people address you as Mr. Tift because you're technically an owner of the team now, or is that just too weird for you? You know, I got called, I get called sir a lot, which is <laughs> weird because normally yeah. it's just Matt when I was a driver. So now it's sir. And I don't know how I feel about it. I, it feels like it's a little strange because they're all, I don't know. I, I don't know how to put it, but it's, it's cool. But yeah. I'm like, 
still just Matt, you know, it's still me. Um, so I'm like, sir, that's kind of weird, but whatever. I guess team ownership role, you become a sir apparently. Yeah, I guess I guess you have some different hats that you wear now that you wore when you were a driver. <laughs> Mr. Tift, sir, whatever. It's it's an adjustment period, but that's that's how we're all dealing with this pandemic, right? That's an understatement to go from the driver to ownership side. It's, it's yep. very, very different. So I need to let you know, uh, the last time the 78 car was on track, they were pretty fast. And I know that you guys are trying to live fast. So I don't know if you're going to be able to live up to the 78 at Furniture Row right away, but I'm sure Mm -hmm. in due time, that's on your guys' goal list. Yeah, you know, it's, um, we, it definitely was not um, lost on us the the importance of the 78 number Mm -hmm. in, uh, you know, the NASCAR um, history and and Barney Visser and Martin Trix Jr. over there. And the number 78 has always been BJ's number. So, he called between NASCAR and Barney and, and the um, guys over there um, to get permission to run the number, which yeah. I thought was really cool because we wanted to be, you know, everything about Live Fast Motorsports, we want to have, um, you know, a great respect in the garage for what we're trying to do. Like you said, we're not going to go out on a championship right now, but um, the plan is to be here for a very long time. It's why we purchased the asset of the charter. Um, it's why we have done what we've done with um, purchasing, you know, the go fast racing equipment for now before we get to the next gen car. Um, there's, there's a lot of things where you look back at Furniture Rose history of where they came from to where they ended up. And I think there's a lot of parallels to what Absolutely. we want to do here. Um, you know, it's all about partnerships and, and, and building um, those relationships and the people around here. So far, we've got great, great people and um, the partner side will come as, as time goes on. We all know it's a little bit tough right now, but, yeah. um, you know, we've we've gotten some good traction with that, which is great being a new team. So let's go back a few months, October 23rd. I think that was the date that you and BJ announced your plans. Then about a month later, I think maybe a little bit under a month, the team name Live Fast was revealed. So the offseason has been, I mean, it started even before the offseason officially commenced, right? But overall, how has this downtime been for you? Because I feel like it hasn't really been that much downtime. It's been go, 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 securing sponsorship, getting the cars all ready, uh, logistically, getting ready to go to Daytona, doing sponsorship announcements. You have a new radio show that you're working on. There's a lot of stuff going on in the off season for Live Fast that I feel like most teams they're busy. Don't get me wrong, but you guys, I feel like mm-hmm. it's to the nth degree. Yeah, I mean, it's um, when you announce a team in October and get the assets um, as far as cars and equipment through end of November to December. Then you got Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's all in there. It's tough to uh, to get things going right yeah. away, but uh, they've done a heck of a job getting stuff together. We're way ahead where we thought we would be. Um, but yeah, I mean, you gotta, you gotta sell the sponsorship to get to Daytona, um, get some cash flow coming in because as a new team, you don't have anything from the year before. Right. Um, but you know, just other aspects of it. I mean, you're right. It's been so crazy. I, this has been the busiest I've ever been in my career, um, which is great, but you know, it's, yeah. it has not been downtime whatsoever. Um, it's been go, go, go. And, and the biggest thing is because we haven't had, um, time to go through a season yet, you're learning the people learning the. Um, the flow, the chemistry there. And the other part too is, you know, we're in um, Benjamin Club Motorsports shop, which is a big, um, it's a big shop, which is great. At the same time, you have two teams working under one roof. So making sure we keep those separate um, on on each side of the shop, but um, you know, making sure everybody's, you know, doing what they need to do, making sure um, nobody's stepping on each other's toes, which they've done a great job so far. And the morale has been great. Um, But you have to make sure that, you know, you're not, 
um, one side's not being treated different than the others. So that's been a big part because I have nothing to do with the Xfinity side at all. That's BJ's deal, yeah. um, which is great. But at the same time, um, I see them every day. I'm in the same offices. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a unique deal because we are in the same space. So that's a, that's been a big thing. Um, and like I mentioned, we are building a new cup shop that'll be coming hopefully mid to end of this year. Um, of course the building situation is just interesting this year because of COVID and everything going yeah. on, um, hard to coordinate stuff, but, um, it's been a very cool um, transition, but at the same time, it's it's been tough because I wasn't at the track last year at all, so I didn't know what the protocols were. I didn't right. know um, what teams and drivers were doing, so I'm still learning that as an owner with our owner calls and the protocols and regulations we have um, because the last time I was at the track was Homestead 19 when I went to go watch um, the race there, and that certainly well, none of this was in place when I, um, it was back then. Yeah, that's pretty wild to think about, and it's good perspective as well. So a, lo- a lot of new teams, though, I know, they kind of move into now defunct teams' race shops, but you guys are building one from scratch, so that's kind of an interesting little aspect into your guys' new foray here. Yeah, I think it goes to the point of we are going to be here for a long time. We're planning for 5, 10, 20, 30 years out, mm-hmm. and to do that was the first part was, was securing the charter, so making sure we had that asset because um, for those of you who don't know, don't really understand the charter system, it really is kind of like baseball or football with a franchise model. So um, in NASCAR side, it guarantees the starting spot in each race. You have a certain amount of revenue coming in, um, but also it puts you in the group of, um, of cars who are really engaged in NASCAR's future. You know, we have a lot of things going on in NASCAR right now between the current generation car of the next gen car coming mm-hmm. TV contracts renewing at the end of 2024, the charter contracts renewing or changing them. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on. So when we built that shop or are in the process of building that shop, like you said, a lot of teams will just move into someone else's. Um, but it, we wanted it to be ours. We want this as two of the youngest owners um, in NASCAR right now to be a brand new thing that we can start fresh from. And I think that's been such an important part because we know um, today's world in NASCAR is so different from 15, 20 years ago. And the next five, 10, 15 years are going to look way different than what we see right now with new tracks and new procedures. And we got a dirt track this year at Bristol. I mean, we, we don't know what's coming, yeah. um, but we know it'll be different. And we're trying to appeal to a new demographic and the live fast name and, and the branding that we have it's it's um, it's you know projected the way we um, want to be edgy and different and younger and um, I think that's NASCAR side too is they want to be um, in that space and element that demo right there so we're trying to grow and change as NASCAR does. I think you're doing a great job of it so far and and like you said the name I mean it's living up right now to the hype of what NASCAR <laughs> is trying to sell as well which is just living a fast lifestyle it's it's really cliche but at the end of the day. If NASCAR is trying to go for a new, younger demographic, you guys fit the bill as owners. And like you said, being around not just for the short term, you're trying to be around 10, 20, 30 years from now. So everything seems to be working in your guys' favor. I want to go back to the charter system for one second because <laughs> you said for people that may not understand, and I was like, yeah, that's me. I don't get it. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's just I, I get it, but it's so hard to follow along with 50% of this mm. one. And, I mean, even JTG Doherty, I mean, the 37 card doesn't have a charter this year. They're an open car. So to get it all out in the open, and let's just confirm stuff here, you and BJ purchased 50% of the assets of the 32 charter from Archie San Hilaire and Joe Falk, and you guys are operating mm-hmm. under that this year. Correct. So, um, that, and that'll be a long-term deal. So yeah. um, Joe Falk still owns 50% of the charter. 
And he was very involved with many um, teams before that as well. So it's kind of two different entities on paper. So you have the Live Fast um, you know, team, and then you have the um, charter, which operates under a different agreement and different name. Um, so it's kind of weird because they are two different entities at the right. same point. Um, BJ and I, we own 50% of that charter and Joe owns 50% of that. But then we kind of own, you know, we technically own the team ourselves, but Joe is also very involved with it. So um, on paper, it may look one way, um, but in the end, we're all kind of in it together. So it's yeah. it's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, it is weird because, you know, you're talking about an asset like that. I think the best way to look at it um, from a different sports perspective is you can have in baseball or, the um, you know, in the NBA or whatever, you can have a group of owners. So you look at the Boston Red Sox and, and um, you know, Fenway there, and there's Roush Fenway racing. There's, um, you know, there was uh, Ganassi and Felix Sabatis racing. So you had those before charters were in place, even in NASCAR back then. So now you're just seeing it. Um, it looks more complicated than it really is on the legal side. Um, but really it's kind of what's happened for a long time uh, in that part, you know, Hendrick Motorsports, Jeff Gordon owned a car, um, but while he's still racing for a Hendrick. So there's I mean, been Stuart a lot Haas of things. racing currently, you know, exactly. So there's been different ownership shares that people have had for a long time. Mm-hmm. There's just now the teams and the charters, So it looks different and it does get confusing, um, uh, from the outside, but really, um, they are, you know, two separate entities and assets. But, um, at the end of the day, like you said, Owning that charter um, really puts us in this place where we can build for the future. Like you said, there's teams right now that are leasing or um, don't have charters. So us being Live Fast Motorsports, owning that charter was so key. And I don't know if we would have done this deal without it, because if you don't get that, I didn't think we we're going to get it at all either. Um, but Joe wanted to stay involved and without him. I don't know if this deal happens. Um, so the stars are kind of aligned with it, but um, owning that charter, really is a big difference because it allows you to plan your future without it, you know, going down there, you don't know if you're going to make the Daytona 500 and selling yeah. sponsorship, especially in today's pandemic environment. It's so tough to not know that you're going to make a race. And um, that's a big security blanket for us to have. It's got to feel pretty good uh, rolling off the yeah. truck at Daytona <laughs> and knowing that even if you crash this thing, you got a spot in the field. And especially this year, entry list is exactly. absolutely stacked. So that's got to be a big relief for you guys. Oh, yeah. I mean, it allows us to control what we want to do. We can control if we want to go up to the front, go to the back, go to the middle. We can yeah. judge the situation and not have to worry about it. And for those guys, we always know. Um, and, well, I shouldn't say always because it's been a few years since you've really had tons of cars trying to make the 500, even the Xfinity Series right now. It's crazy how many cars they have going down there. So I think it's pretty cool to see um, that this year there's, like you said, this stacked field going down there there's people that are going to go home the duels are going to be intense but for us we had to make sure the cars you know cars going well drafting okay not hitting the splitter and we learn from it and try to make sure we keep our best piece going into the 500 try not to wreck it and um you know kind of it makes it nice you know we don't have to stress and i know that's such a huge stress so i'll be um i'll be enjoying being a fan for that race (laughs) and the owner hat but not having to worry about okay this guy isn't gonna make it is this guy gonna make it um it makes it a lot nicer it's got to be a big relief for you there and i'm curious as to when you get down to daytona if you're going i don't even know if you can but i'm going oh for sure i'm not missing that (laughs) good good i'm glad because i know there's been a lot of chatter about drivers families and owners whatever but i'm glad you're gonna be down there um when you see the car roll off the truck for the first practice session of that week, 
You see the Live Fast name on it. You see the 78 on it. BJ's name's on it. What's the feeling there? Is it pride, relief, excitement, fear, all of the above? <laughs> all the above. Definitely all the above. You know, we're about to announce our sponsor uh, here coming up this next week or two um, for the 500. So right now, all the cars in the shop are gray. We're about to get the wraps on all of them. Um, so coming from, you know, the pipe dream of this deal, uh, you know, a little bit less than a year ago to now, um, it's been just go, 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 you know, wishing, hoping things would happen, trying to make it work. It did work. Then finding, okay, we gotta go hire everybody. And then once we hired everybody, it's like, okay, we need equipment, you know, just getting everything situated. Um, even to the point of the other day, I'm taking our, um, Stuart Haas picker out for, for lunch, you know? just those little things that you're building in there. Mm -hmm. It's like, wow, this is becoming a reality. So I think all that hard work, all the things you do um, to get to that point are, it's like, everything's there. You know, once you're there, I can't do anything. I'm not a driver anymore. Um, And and they have opened up an owner slot to come um, to the the races, which is nice. Um, So for me to be able to go down there and see that hard work work, um, payoff will be such a, I think relieving, um, exciting, but relieving at the same time. I think the 500 will be exciting, but the getting off the truck and going to qualify, I think it'll just be a good day to be able to sit back and kind of watch it unfold and just soak it in. You know, my first 500 as a driver, I was told by so many people just, you know, try to remember the feelings of this. And I kind of feel like that's the same deal here as a new owner. Um, so soak it in enjoy it. And, um, you know, I'm in a fortunate position to be a part of this team, this group, and it's been such a hard year for so many people. Um, so to be in this position and from where I was a year ago, um, is such a, a huge deal. It's glad you got a good mindset about it. When, when you're going to be watching the 500, just grab a nice cold beer, grab some nachos or something, sit back, relax, because at that point, <laughs> like you said, you can be as stressed as you want, but the result is out of your yep. hands because like you said, you're not the driver right. anymore. So now it's all up to BJ at that point. Yep. Yeah, no, it's it's nice to not go in there and be freaked out about something. I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure I'm going to be you know put on my driver's hat like you know trying to say you need to do this, 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 and yeah. this. But <laughs> I'm going to make sure my radio doesn't have a button on there, so there I'll just go. be there. You know, like you said, <laughs> shutting up and hanging out. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious about the timing of you and BJ this venture into ownership. I mean, was it the attractiveness of the next gen car, and did the, did the timing of that getting pushed back to next year have anything to do with it? Was it the business model? Was it the timing was right for you two specifically individually? I mean, why get into team ownership right now going into 2021? Was this a premeditated plan? Did this kind of happen organically in the last few months? Why now? Even when I was at Front Row, I always had a thought of what it would be like to eventually one day be a team owner. I didn't think it was going to come so quick. Um, (laughs) But at the same time, I I didn't know how realistic it was. Um, especially not the charter side, mm-hmm. but Bijan and I have been, I mean, he, he taught me how to drive my first stock car when I was 12 years old and people don't realize that the connection we've um, had every Friday night, we go out for, um, you know, people go to the bar and stuff. We go to a movie, we see a movie every Friday night of every um, weekend we go to I love the bro, music rooms in, in my wedding. Oh yeah. Yeah. He was a grooms in my wedding. He's like an older brother to me. So, yeah. um, we've been, you know, I go out on this boat and he goes out on mine. Like we just, we've been together for so long mm-hmm. and on paper or on pictures, you wouldn't think that me and BJ would be good friends like <laughs> no. that because he looks like he'd crush me. Uh, <laughs> he would, but, um, he would crush me. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I have no shot. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, I think the biggest thing was 
he was in the ownership position for a while on the Xfinity side. Now, going back even to the beginning, he owned the late model team that I raced for um, for him. Then after that, um, you know, I raced the first truck series race that he owned um, a truck team at, at Martinsville. Mm-hmm. His Xfinity teams um, got started in 2016, and he's run that for many years, um, knew how to do it, had gone through the mistakes and the learning process of it. And, you know, when he started that deal, he had to start from really scratch on that because there's no charter and there's no assets. You don't know if you're going to make the race. Um, so that's the the cool thing about him is he scrapped his way up here from being a late model owner to K&M, um, trucks, Xfinity, and on the Cup Series level. So I had no hesitation or doubt that he could do it from that side. And when we talked about it, it just made sense. I mean, for the, the dollar amount nowadays that it takes to go run um, as a driver for a car, it's a lot. It's a lot, a lot. And being in the position, I was fortunate enough to be able to um, either come up with partners or um, be involved in a place where I could um, afford to go into rides. And I had family helping there too. You know, I'm not ashamed to admit that. Um, but at some point, you know, that stuff dries up and you start going to, all right, I got to get um, sponsorship to keep on moving. So I got, you know, we're at RCR in front row. I was very involved on the sponsorship front to make sure I could keep my career going. Um, and beyond that, you know, you'd, you'd have six month year contract, whatever it was. And on the ownership side, you don't have to worry about that as much because I mean, you do have to worry about short-term things, but you can plan as a business. Yeah. And we realized between the next gen car coming, um, well, when we first started talking about it, it was going to be 2021, the car was coming. So yeah. we didn't really expect that curveball to be thrown in there. Um, because we had to buy, you know, 12 cars that are going to be obsolete after this year. Exactly. But um, at the same time, we knew, we look historically um, throughout decades of sports, there's always some moment in there where things change. We heard the rumors about Michael Jordan, Denny Hamlin doing this. Um, we actually signed our deal and had it done, um, you know, during a period where you got them, you got Trackhouse with Justin Marks and now Pitbull in there. Yeah. We were kind of quietly, you know, there, but we just hadn't announced for a long time. And that was, of course, in respect to Archie and our agreements there um, from Go Fast Racing. But at the same time, you know, the reason we wanted to get involved is because we knew the NASCAR was realizing that, hey, the sponsorship dollars are still there, but it's not what it was. And we know that the tracks are still there, but we need to go to different places. And we know the audience is still there, but we need to attract new people. So the leadership between Steve Phelps and Steve O'Donnell, what they're doing over there, I think, is finally realizing that this is a new path that we need to go down. And I think that was reflected. I think there's that study that came out that said NASCAR was in the top 10 um, brands that Gen Z folks, um, you know, really, um, you know, focused on or, or was attracted to whatever it was. And I don't think we've seen anything like that since the early 2000s when NASCAR was um, just behind the NFL and brands, upcoming brands from Forbes. And so being that we're in that spot today, um, you know, we're, we changed the culture of the Confederate flag deal. We had the diversity and inclusion um, practices of, of last year, the first, first sport to come back from COVID, the first one that had, you know, flat ratings um, that sustained most um, sports fell. There's, there's the changing of the guard in there um, for sports and how you handle sports and live events. And NASCAR um, is doing a good job with that. And I think they set themselves up to succeed for the future with progressive and forward thinking. And that was a big part that we said, hey, we think NASCAR will be here for a long time to come. You know, we, you hear the um, part of my friendship, but you hear the bullshit of, of NASCAR 
going away, NASCAR dead, blah, blah, blah. It's not. It's not at all. People love NASCAR. It's the second most watched sport in America. You know, it's to be a team owner, it's a privilege and honor to do it. But we did it because we believe in the sport's future. It's very well said. I don't think I can add too much more to that. But the nail on the head that you hit is essentially it's not going away. It's just changing. And that's that was reflected this right. year in the Confederate flag ban and the social activism that they were taking. I'd never thought that I would see the day that NASCAR supported an LGBTQ organization. <laughs> I, I never thought I'd see the day. Right. And that happened this year, yeah. along with all of the other progressive mm -hmm. stances that they've taken. And I think, like you said, you know, there's Michael Jordan, there's Pitbull, there's Justin Marks, there's all these new owners in the sport. And while the, all that was going on, you and BJ were quietly doing your deal like BJ has done for most of his career, just kind of stay mm -hmm. in the background, not being noticed, but getting stuff done. And I think that you guys were flying under the radar in that aspect. And again, this year, you know, you're realistic about things. You're not going to be contending for wins week in and week out when 2311 racing may be here and there. Trackhouse Racing has a partnership mm -hmm. with RCR. They may be contending for top tens every now and then. But you guys understand the task that's ahead of you. And it's a big one, but it's not something you're going to tackle in a year. This is a long game that you guys are playing no. here. So I, I think you guys have a really good mindset about that. And I think NASCAR's reflected that as well. No, and I, I appreciate that. And I think the biggest thing is we've tried to be as transparent as possible without mm -hmm. being loud about it. You know, we want to do a good job for our partners. We want to put out good content on social media. We want to hit on those things and tell our story and control our narrative. Um, but we don't have to. We don't have to show anything. We don't have to, you know, put out anything. We are who we are. We have the budget that we have. And at the same time, nobody knows what comes to this next gen car. Um, so we've aligned ourselves with Stuart Haas Racing. That's a big deal for us to, to be aligned with such a powerhouse team with that. And the more we can utilize that relationship and, and be able to be partnered with them um, as the years go on, we can help build our team. Again, it goes back to the partner side and dollars coming in to utilize that as much as we can mm -hmm. um, because, you know, it's, it's still at minimal level right now. But at the same point, you know, this year we put out realistic expectations of, hey, we'll probably be 25th to 30th on speed through attrition. We'll pick up some spots. Um, we'll have good days. But at the same time, we're a small team. You know, we don't have uh, we don't have millions and millions of, of, um, of budget to go um, spend on developmental stuff, especially with this current car. So anything we do get with that, of course, we're going to perform to the best of our again, to execute to the best of our budget. It's kind of our motto. Um, yeah. But looking at the next year, what's coming, we know we're planning for that in the future there. And we know there's a lot of opportunity to shine with that new car um, over these next few years. So. There's no point in us coming out and being flashy and doing things here um, to say for this year that we're going to be great because we're going to do good. We're going to do the best of our abilities. But, um, you know, our greatness comes in a business plan to where we build for 5, 10, 15, 20 years out to where one day we will be one of those powerhouse teams. But mm -hmm. that's not today. What has Jordan said about this entire venture for you? I, I, it's not every day that a 24, 25 year old kid is getting into NASCAR cup series team ownership. So I imagine the wife has some thoughts about it. Yeah. I mean, she, of course, during the time period where I was not racing, it was hard for both of mm -hmm. us. And, and she's done such a great job. She has her own um, business with a, a boutique in um, South park here in Charlotte. And um, it's, it's been cool because I think she's seen 
the highest of the highs. She's seen the lowest. She's seen the um, sicknesses and, and everything in there. So her support has never been, uh, it's always been an un unwavering support in there. And so I think now um, the idea was very cool to her and me when it first started getting talked about. But again, it wasn't real until we came in here. Even when I showed her the shop, we didn't have a, we didn't have a car in here. It was a cup car, all Xfinity cars. So it was like, here it is, but this will eventually be coming. So yeah, back yeah. in Christmas and um, it was like Christmas. We had, um, we had cars here, you know, because um, <laughs> they got prepped and had to get certified from the NASCAR R&D Center. Um, so we're going through that process and like, we're building a cup team. You look out, there's no cup cars. Um, now we have tons of cup cars out here. So I think the cool thing has been, um, you know, definitely the understanding of what it takes to, to run a team. Um, not that she, you know, is involved all the time with this stuff, but she hears, you know, what I said when I go home. Um, but she's also seeing a different side of me too, that I did this on the driver's side to be in sponsor realm and everything, but now it's a different hat. You know, I'm, I'm wearing a dress shirt today. And dress That's pants. what I was going to say. Uh, yeah. You know, did that occasionally <laughs> as a driver. Yeah. Um, doing, you know, just little things of putting on the co-owner hat in a, you know, in a NASCAR team, any sports team, it's so different because you're, you're not only as a driver yourself, as you worry about yourself, the team, your pit crew, make sure you're utilizing um, your partners and things like that. But as a team owner, you're in charge of these people's careers, um, their livelihoods, um, our livelihoods, where we go. Um, it feels very much more like a CEO um, role. And yeah. luckily I was brought up in a family um, that was very business minded. So I, I feel like I wear the hat kind of naturally in that. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's a cool part from the families that I can make a call and say, Hey, this contractor, this legal part, what do you think on this? And um, at the same time, you know, I've learned a lot over the years from watching them. So I've gotten some of those, you know, natural things that have been able to help. And finally racing for big teams, you know, I've worked with some great people um, with, you know, larger teams that have taught me a ton of things, um, from front row, the way they manage their team to RCR with, um, with Tori over there, how he ran that and a lot of the team um, stuff to Joe Gibbs racing. I've been in a lot of very cool and unique situations to where I feel like coming in this spot running our own team, I've learned so much that it's been really fun. That's a good point too. I, I didn't really think about the fact that you would work with all those different organizations. And even though you'd been in the driving sector, you always had your ear to the ground about the business aspects with that type of thing, because as you know, you know, sponsors make the world go round and JGR ain't mm -hmm. no slouch. RCR ain't no slouch. Front row ain't no slouch. So you've kind of absorbed by osmosis all these different aspects of the <laughs> racing world on the business side that you're now kind of applying. Have you noticed anything specific that, you know, in your team ownership days, you're like, oh, I didn't know that I knew that. Or, well, I guess this is ingrained in me from a young yeah. age, something like that. What was funny was we were, um, we got in here and we were having a meeting in December and, um, I was talking to BJ and you were a Ford performance team and we we're just talking about stuff. And I was like, okay, I'll call, um, you know, I won't say it there, but I, I'll call this person, this person. And, um, you know, BJ has always been very much up on the competition part side and things like that. And he came back to me. He's like, I didn't know that you realized who was on the Ford server. I didn't know you had this relationship with an NASCAR executive. And so I think that's been kind of the cool thing. It's like, he's realized that I have, I've worked with these people. I've had these connections mm -hmm. and he's always been very much in his world of making his team go. Um, but that didn't mean he worked on the NASCAR side as much where I have. 
Um, and that's been a cool connection because he's very good at the parts and pieces and personnel side of making sure everything's in place mm-hmm. where I get to kind of work on the admin side of the, um, the, you know, the, the NASCAR side of things, the ownership um, council side of things, also um, the budget and sponsorship and things like that, that I've had to use the last few years of my career to keep my career going. Um, and now I get to do that in conjunction with his, um, his, you know, intelligence on that side. So yeah. Really, our strengths and weaknesses really balance out each other in a pretty cool way. All right, let's talk a little bit more about BJ because your guys' relationship is one of the most fascinating things that I have ever seen in NASCAR, (laughs) especially these days. So like you said, it's on the surface level, it just seems so different. Like you're a 24-year-old baby-faced kid, right? And BJ is this, I don't know how old he is exactly, but he looks like a skull crusher. 37, 37 year old skull crusher, heavy metal, Oakley collector. Straight out out of the WWE. (laughs) Literally, he looks like a wrestler. I mean, and you guys have a really good relationship. And it it went back to when you started racing in Florida. And people now they've started to understand that. But hand up, I didn't realize that your guys' relationship went back that far. I didn't know that he was a groomsman in your wedding. I didn't know you guys went out to the movies together on Saturday nights while all your friends were going out to bars and stuff. Why are you guys such an unlikely pair, and why is this bromance a thing? I don't know. <laughs> it's very <laughs> weird. Um, you know, I think at the on the surface we look very different, but on on a deeper level we're very similar. So mm-hmm. at the end of the day, we're both racers. We both want to. Our lives revolve around racing. Um, you know, the other part too is he he got to see the business world for himself and his family growing up. He yeah. ran a lot of uh, different things between Orange Groves and um, contracting companies. Um, and, and, you know, from, from my side, I met him when I was 12 years old. So <laughs> when you get to know someone that young, um, you know, half my life, I've known BJ. I've known him longer than most people I work with or my wife, you know, I've yeah. known BJ for longer um, than many relationships I have. So, He's shaped a lot of things in my career. He's given me a lot of advice of where to go and what to do. Um, so every aspect of my career, he's always had a hand in somewhere in there, um, which a lot of people, again, they don't realize of how much he's been in there. But another thing, too, about BJ that, that people don't realize is that we've gotten into sales meetings. I, I've been in them my whole career. And you have top salesmen. You have people that are paid um, you know, six digits to go close deals. And BJ is one of the best closers I've ever seen in a sales meeting, which you would never guess um, ever. But that's the cool part is that I get to work on that. I get to bring things forward and then you just bring them in because they'll be a little weary of like, you know, will BJ do this or do that? And he's one of the most sincere um, guys, but also very genuine. Mm-hmm. And the biggest part is he is a straight shooter. And I think that's one of the big things we've talked about is live fast and is built on integrity and being very transparent. And BJ will go in there and say, we are not doing a racing at all. Maybe one day we will be, but right now we are not. And here's what we can give you. And I think that people respect the fact that we're not, we're not BSing them saying we're going to go um, do this, this, and this when we can't. And I think that has built a rapport that's been so good because they know we're not trying to sell them a, um, a penny stock to be a blue chip stock. Um, that's, that's not what we do. It's very timely conversation this week. Yeah. I I just thought that as soon as I said it. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about something a little bit of a hard right turn, but recently you've announced that you're epileptic and people know your history with seizures. 
but it was important for you to get that information out there. And I found it interesting when you compared, you know, having the brain tumor, it was something tangible that you could understand and you could see and, you know, you couldn't really control it, but you had the, the preventative measures that you put in place to control that as much as you could. But with epilepsy, it's not something tangible that you can see. It's something that you can treat, but it's not something that you can really like get out there and say, all right, let's get rid of this thing. And I, I like how you talked mm -hmm. about that and said, you know, that's been a hard adjustment for you to understand and come to grips with. But you did make a donation to the National Epilepsy Foundation, $7,800. Shout out to 78, of course. Mm -hmm. Why was it important for you yeah. to get that information out there to the masses, to the public, and help everybody understand what you've been going through? I think it was because I was, I was ready to. Um, I was diagnosed in January of 2020. This is January of 2021. Mm -hmm. It took me a year to get that out there. That's a long time. Um, and people would ask, you know, have you had more seizures? I publicly said the one about October and then my honeymoon in December, what happened? But I never talked about it much after that. And I think it took me, well, first of all, a lot of therapy. Um, I couldn't leave my house. I was so anxious about everything. I came out and spoke about uh, mental health and mental illness and, and anxiety. Um, cause I didn't think that was a real thing before this happened. I feel, you know, sick in my stomach now saying that, but I didn't believe that. Um, now I of course do cause I live it every day. Um, so I've, I've come out and talked about my mistake with that part of it. And I've tried to help a lot of people with it, um, understanding the signs of it and getting my story out there beyond that. Um, it was an acceptance thing because I still wanted to be Matt, the race car driver. Um, we'd have internal conversations here about me driving someday. And I never, I wasn't able to say that I was epileptic to my friends, anybody than my family, my wife, they knew. Um, but even, you know, people I'm close with here, I, I couldn't talk about it because it just, I it was like just stuck. I couldn't get it out. Um, and I think that was a, a, a subconscious thing. I, I just couldn't say it, but I couldn't get myself to accept it yeah. um, in my head. And there's a turning point where I said it one time um, because someone had I um, someone said that they their brother or sister was epileptic, and I heard somebody else say it. Then I realized all of a sudden they're talking about seizures and then saying they're epileptic. Then I, I thought, let me just try to talk about this if people ask me um, in public. So I started talking, saying that I do have epilepsy. Then it was, oh, my best friend has it, my mom has it, my um, brother has, it, my husband has, it, my wife has it. It's like, wow, I never realized there's so many people with it who have had seizures in their life. Mm -hmm. And I found out that one in 10 people will have a seizure in their life. It's like, how is that not talked about more? Or um, the millions of people who have epilepsy in the United States. Then I kind of came to terms with it. And I was so anxious the whole time about if I would have a seizure in public, what would I do? All this kind of stuff. So it was partly because I wanted to go to the track and know that if something happened to me, um, you know, the people would know that my condition and hopefully with the treatment I have now that it never happens again. Um, but there's, of course, there's always a chance. And beyond that, I wanted to help people. Like you said, the brain tumor was very tangible. I'm a very goal oriented person. So it was surgery, recovery, um, test a car, go racing. This was don't know when it happens. Don't know when it's going to happen. Don't know if it'll ever happen again. Mm -hmm. um, so I had to live with that. I still have to live with that. And I think the scaredness of that and the anxiety that, that brings, um, I wanted to put that out there that, Hey, I am, you know, 
I have done all this great stuff in my life, but at the same time, this really grounds me. And I want to connect with people who also have it. And putting that out there has been great because people, um, I think, have respected it, but also been able to connect with it. Because I've had people that said they've been crying in tears saying, I just found someone who has the same thing as me. And it's so, so cool to have that connection. And like we said, uh, or like you said, I've made a $7,800 donation, of course, the number 78, um, to the Epilepsy Foundation um, to you know, really keep on um, building on the treatments and protocols that they have because my medicine I'm on now that's helped me so much to make my seizures less violent and less lengthy to be less damaging to my brain is because um, you know that that new treatment was because the last four or five years of them making that medicine and that's uh, um, you know without donations and things like that and attention to it uh, that would never happen. So I want to be a part of um, helping find more cures and more treatments for it. No, it, it's great that you've been public and sharing that. And just a, a story about like my personal experience with it. I had a camper when I was a counselor at, at sleepaway camp and I was his personal counselor. You know, I was with him 24 seven when he woke up, what he did during the day, when he went to bed, everything. And he had epilepsy. He has epilepsy. And I'm still friends with him to this day. And I go over to his house, go hang out with his family. But I mean, that first summer I got trained with an EpiPen and carried around with me everywhere and learn his triggers and learn how, you know, what happens when he has one, you know, what he's going to say, what he's going to do, all that type of stuff. There's a lot of things that go into it that, you know, people just see on the surface, oh, this person's epileptic or whatever, or he has epilepsy and this mm -hmm. happens, that happens, whatever. I know you like told a story about, you know, what happens to your tongue when, when you feel like you're going to get one and then the precautions that you take. It's different hearing that. It's different actually living it and seeing it. And I thankfully haven't mm -hmm. seen my camper, who's one of my friends now, have one. But, you know, I lived with him for three, four weeks at a time and living with that. I don't want to say fear, but just that knowledge of like, OK, this oh, yeah. could happen at any time. Um, and I think that's important. And I'm glad that you said something about that publicly, because like you said, one in 10 people and there's millions of Americans that live with it every single day and to know that they're not alone and there's ways to help treat it and it's you know becoming more and more acceptable to talk about it out loud that's a big thing and same thing with mental health like you said um cody ware is going to be full-time in the cup series this year he's been a huge mental health advocate as well so i think it's really cool that you're you're speaking about that openly that's something that i think candidly nascar needs some more of and as a younger owner who has unique experiences yourself that's something that you're going to bring to the table no absolutely i think the one of the biggest things for me has just been learning people's condition with epilepsy because it's all so different. And mm -hmm. the other part is um, the, um, the different part with it is it's in, it's an invisible disease, right? Like you can't see anything that's wrong with me. Right. Sure. Maybe I have some anxious moments or ticks or things that I do, but it's not like there's a blatant disease there. And I think the other um, thing too, is what people don't realize about being epileptic is that I'm still me. You know, in my world, I can say in my head that I can still go drive a race car if I wanted to. Um, I can't, but I know my abilities. I know what I could do there. Um, I know that I'm still me. I'm still the person I was before, um, but with, with an asterisk there. You know, I have to be more careful about what I do, what I eat, what I do for lifestyle things, sleeping, hydration, all that kind of stuff. And it's interesting because epilepsy has a stigma um, of Kind of being like a, a terrifying disease and it is scary for people who see it and go through it it's, it's horrifying um but you know i'm not going to let 14 or 15 minutes of my life that i've been convulsing or whatever shape my entire life and i think it's 
um, I'm in a fortunate spot to be where I'm currently, you know, getting a treatment that's been helping me. Um, I'll never, never say it has fixed me because you never know. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same point, I know people um, and their kids have thousands a day, one every five minutes. I mean, I could not imagine living like that. Yeah. So I'm very fortunate that's happened um, when it has, I've always been in a safe spot. I mean, there's so many things that could have been wrong. Like the day I had it in Martinsville, I drove my truck and parked it five minutes before it happened. You know, who knows what happened if I was on the road um, going down to turn into Martinsville. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things um, that I've come to peace with learning because of the fact that I know mine is um, controllable and um, it, it, there's certainly things I can do to help it out, which has given a sense of control. But at the same point, I know it's not always uh, under control. And I have to accept that fact, which is hard. Absolutely. And one of those things that you're doing to help keep it under control is the keto diet. And I know we talked like a few years ago. I think it's got to be what, three, four years ago at this point. Uh, I think it was before yeah. Martinsville or maybe after. I, I forget. But you've, you're still on keto. So you've been on keto for like almost going on, what, half a decade at this point? That's insane. I think it's, yeah, it's coming up to four years. And what was interesting was during that time when I had my first one, I went off of it for a bit. So I don't know if that was a trigger. Hmm. Um, Several of the ones I had um, in the spring of last year was also, I kind of wanted to experiment um, going off of it. And my frequency was so much worse when I was off of keto. So going on to keto has really lengthened out the the time span of me um, having a seizure. So I was actually like 10 days away from going six months free at one point. So I was kind of pissed about yeah. that. But um, at the same point, I've, I've just been able to, you know, I got better medication. Um, the severity of them have gone down. But yeah, it's, um, you know, for drug resistant epilepsy, um, you know, keto, the ketogenic diet was actually formulated in the 1920s or 30s for epilepsy. And it's not a cure all, but it certainly helps. Right. And um, that's been a, a cool thing to learn that I knew that, but then now knowing um, and seeing the frequency and how much it helps with that, um, that with treatment is a big difference maker. Um, and I certainly feel, you know, the difference of if I have something um, or that so those time periods where I, I was not on keto, my brain felt like it was kind of going haywire a little bit mm-hmm. and being back on it. It's so interesting to see the calmness that comes with it. Um, so there's definitely a lot of therapeutic um, things that come with it for my condition, but um, a lot of brain stuff too. That's really fascinating. I didn't know that it a was developed to combat epilepsy and B that it has that big of an effect on you individually. That's, that's really interesting to see. Crazy. I know another yeah. thing I would never guessed it. <laughs> yeah. I, I know another thing that you do. And I think I read an article, I think it was an NBC sports, maybe last year, CBD oils. And I want to talk mm-hmm. about the sponsorship side of that because correct me if I'm wrong, but NASCAR currently does not allow CBD sponsorship. You being an owner at this point, I know this has mm-hmm. been a point of passion for you because, you know, especially in this day and age in NASCAR, it's like, I'm a company, I want to give my money into the sport, and they're telling me no. And that's happened before. You've said that has. Is that going to be maybe a point of emphasis for you down the road? I'm not saying today or tomorrow, but in a few years here, that to get CBD oils more of like a an, an accepted brand into NASCAR sponsorship? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I haven't been shy about my usage of it. I still use it every day. Um, it's a big part that's helped with my anxiety um, in this mental health world and, and things that people are coming out with NASCAR now. Um, it's a it's a big deal that's helped out on that side, too. Um, with the sponsorship side, yeah, I mean, we, um, as a driver, we had a few times where we had companies come in and want to, but, you know, the, the rules just wouldn't allow it. So, yeah. 
Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of parts that go into it, though, because it's not necessarily the sanctioned body's fault in that because um, it goes to FCC regulations, too, of what can mm-hmm. can't be shown on TV. Um, sure. So there's a lot of layers with it that go along with it. So it's not I mean, NASCAR could approve it and they could be great with it. But if um, the FCC says no, um, that's a much bigger brother than than what I can talk about. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I do think we'll see the day when that comes. And I think it'll be awesome to be able to promote that. Um, personally, I promote it. Um, but from a business side and the NASCAR side, um, obviously, we have to be careful about what we say on that part of it. But, you know, what I will say is that it does help me a lot. I know it helps a lot of people. Um, but at the same point, I think even if NASCAR wanted to approve it, um, there's issues with, you know, some of them are full spectrum, which contain a little bit of THC. Some are no um, THC in there. So the drug um, testing part of it is definitely an issue. Yeah. And again, the other part being the FCC, um, if, you know, if cable network is done, you, you can't have it on car, you can't have it in a car. They can't yeah. commercial. Um, they can't have commercials on it. So I think until you see a commercial for it, we're probably going to be way down the line of approving it. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. I didn't think of the, all the different layers to it in terms of the approval process, the drug testing. That's a huge thing as well. So there's a lot of different levels to it, but hopefully one day we'll get there. Um, all right. Thank you for bearing Absolutely. with me with that, uh, those serious topics. Let's get oh, you sure. out of here with some fun ones. Tell me the story about okay. your time at, in the Canine Pro Series racing at Richmond that conflicted with your senior prom, which involved 33 missed calls <laughs> from your date's best friend. <laughs> your face says it all. I triggered why? you. Not, not, not the question, but why she had to call that many times. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so we're, uh, I'm driving for Schrader and we're mm-hmm. at the K&N race down there and the, rain, um, the race gets rained out the night before. And so that was a Friday night. The prom was on Saturday Yep. <laughs> and get my phone. Just says I texted uh, my date and I said, Hey, I'm going to make it still, but I'm going to be close. And so her date just decides to call first. My dad don't know how she got my dad's yeah, number. That's bizarre never me. given out. It's from high school. Yeah. I don't get that. <laughs> called him 27 times and called me five times. And of course my dad's like, what the hell is going on? Here? Um, yeah, that was a little bit nuts. And then we get done with the race and I drive from Richmond to DC to catch the flight back just mm-hmm. to make it. So that's like a four hour drive with, because there's standstill traffic because, um, you know, that area is just awful. With traffic I live there. I know it. So I get in the flight. Oh, and then, I get on the flight, make it to Cleveland, land in Cleveland at like 6.30, get um, from the airport to my house at 7 o'clock, change my tux, get the car, go pick her. Um, oh, I wasn't going to pick her up, but no, I did pick her up. Um, that, no, I did not. I drove to the school. <laughs> we had the pictures there, and she wasn't very happy. Then we went from there. I picked her up and drove her to the actual prom place, and um, I don't think she said two words to me. So, um, Well, you probably smelled like shit because you didn't even shower. Good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, maybe that was it. I, I don't know. But either way, it did not go well. And um, we went to Kalahari, the water park the next day. And that was fun. So okay. I got that out of it. That's good. That's an <laughs> insane story to me. Yeah. 33 so ne- never, calls. Oh, my gosh. Dude, it was awful. But the funny thing was in high school, you're allowed to miss, I think, 10 or 15 days a year. Mm-hmm. I missed 150 days across the four years there. Hmm. And the only reason I think I escaped that was because my vice principal was a huge Dale Jr. fan. <laughs> so they um, they let me go. And then they gave me an Ohio Scholastic Award for sportsmanship that they made up for me, which was super <laughs> cool. 
Um, but not only did I break Ohio law, but then they awarded me for it. So, yeah. Take it any way you can get it, my man. Put that on the resume. Absolutely. Still graduated with a 3.8 GPA, so. There we go. Suck it. <laughs> Let's talk about your Browns. Uh, they surprised a lot of people this postseason. Uh, you gave away, I think, a signed helmet or something like that. You must have been on cloud nine watching yep. the Browns play this postseason. It's weird when you're a Cleveland sports fan. I've been a diehard Cleveland sports mm -hmm. fan since I was little. It's weird when the Browns are the best team in Cleveland. That's not that, normal. First of all, that's strange. <laughs> no, it's not normal. Um, it was really cool. I was freaking out every Sunday. Normally, Jordan's used to be watching football until you know November, December, and the season's over. And she's like, you're still watching football? I'm like, yeah, they're in the playoffs. Like, let's go. Yeah. And uh, no, it's super cool. I think I, um, I did a couple things. So they played um, – I was up in Ohio. I think they are playing – they were playing the Giants when they won that game. That was like, those are, you know, one of the make or break games to get in the playoffs. So I put out on Twitter and said, Hey, if my, um, if my Browns win, I'll have my sister um, pie me in the face with whipped cream. And then um, there was, uh, oh, then the Browns um, signed helmet giveaway. That was cool. So I did some cool, fun stuff around it. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really cool, really fun. Um, just a cool ride. I've, I've never seen that in my life before. Yeah. So I was uh, enjoying the crap out of that. That's for sure. I got Baker fever. <laughs> yeah, you do. Are you on the camp that thinks that uh, Baker and the offense is better off without Odell? Or are you just like, no, we need Odell. So they don't have a speed burn. So that's definitely their problem is they yeah. need him in that role. I think they need to adjust it though, because um, they definitely use Landry in a lot better way. Mm -hmm. After he was gone, they passed the ball around a lot better. So they can use him in there, but they got to get the system down, excuse me, but I don't think they had their offensive unit together either of how they're playing the system because they're mm -hmm. so new. So I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, but at the same time, they're definitely better afterwards. I don't know if that was time or, um, or cohesion or what, but it certainly is interesting. The, the QB comparison of before and after Odell yeah. being there. Matt Tift, NFL analyst, ESPN's coming for you. I swear. I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm just, a, I'm just a fan. If you watch my podcast, I, I go off on them sometimes. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Let's talk about your podcast for a little bit. Life in the fast lane. We're living fast. We're in the fast lane. That's a good idea. Yeah. I'm glad that you guys are doing that. You're trying to take my podcast King crown away, but that's fine. Give it to you for a little bit. Um, it's good though. I've listened to a few episodes. It's good. You got some Browns talk in there. Got some racing talk in there. What more could you want? Right. It's going well. Yeah, no, it's been fun. I've, I've never really done much of it other than being on other people's podcasts. So being the host in there has been cool, um, choosing the topics. So we do a little bit of racing, a little bit of sports, but then mm -hmm. one of the fun things has been um, we talk about a lot of current events and movie stuff because um, mm -hmm. I get to be in a movie. Um, so since then, I've kind of taken mm -hmm. an interest in the industry. And, um, you know, we've talked about all kinds of uh, stuff going on, whether it's been, I'm sure this week we'll talk about, you know, the big short going on with all the GameStop stuff going on mm -hmm. and, and uh, AMC, people trying to save them and the Reddit in there. <laughs> um, but then also you got uh, just every week, I know that the Kardashians buying each other, you know, million dollar cars and things <laughs> like that. So um, we talk about a lot of fun, cool yeah. stuff, which I, I haven't gotten the chance, you know, in our interviews, like this is a fun one. Um but there's a lot of them that, you know, are just so racing yeah. focused. You don't yeah. get to show your personality. So for me, it's a fun chance to kind of control what I want to talk about. And, and that's, yeah. that's been fun. You led me right into my next question. Professional transition there. You're an actor. Okay. How, how did this happen? <laughs> what movies are you in? 
Uh, so be, it's called The Hunting, which is coming out, in, I believe, in fall of 2021. Okay. Um, yeah, I was doing this podcast with these guys that I got hooked up with, and then uh, their friend was the director for this movie, and they needed someone to play a part in it. And I volunteered myself uh, right away because during um, uh, during quarantine, um, I didn't know what to do. Is before the team ownership side, and they had an open casting call for this local agency. And lo and behold, I um, did a commercial video for them and they uh, accepted me into the agency there. So uh, I did a boot camp over the summer and all of a sudden I was in this acting world and I was getting you know trained with that and mm-hmm. I still do a little bit with it. Um, but then I got to be in this movie. So that was pretty cool. That's so um, cool. It was it's so different, but it's fun because it's totally out of my element, which has been neat because normally interviews are the car's tight, car's loose. Can't thank the guys enough for the stuff to the shop, whatever. <laughs> um, the same crap you hear every single yeah, interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And doing like improv classes and scenes and, and all that sort of stuff has been really cool because uh, you get to really learn about how to um, how to present yourself in front of the camera, little things you do with your eyes and like looks and, and things like that. But also the, the fun part's been embodying somebody else so being instead of matt tiff being bobby or whoever the heck it is and yeah. you're the sinister guy or um on the show you know being a, a drunk fisherman that's pissed at his wife and gets killed, like get being killed i had to i had to act being killed and you have to put yourself in these situations and you have a camera rolling the whole crew you know depending on you to do your job which yeah. is kind of like racing for me and it's just super neat because you get to you get to put your mind in a different place in a pressure packed situation um, that's not involved being behind the wheel of a race car. And that was really neat because I had the same adrenaline rush that I would get racing, um, which I hadn't felt in a long time. So is this something you want to do more of? I'd love to do more of it. Absolutely. Yeah. I I don't know where it'll go. Obviously I'm busy on this side a lot, but if an opportunity presents itself, you know, I'm keeping myself open to things, but this has been so busy, of course, and this yeah, is my yeah. main focus, but if there's something that works with the schedule, then I would um, absolutely love to, to um, be a part of it. That's cool. So 20 through 11 has got MJ track house has got Pitbull lift fast has got an actor. <laughs> I don't know if I call myself an actor, more <laughs> of a, more of a stand in. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Well, we got a celeb in that. We got a celeb in the house. So that, that works. Um, yeah, something like that. But yeah, we're definitely not Pitbull or um, or MJ by any means. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there eventually. Uh, one day, one day. I, I, I'm not, I'm not Sir Ernest, but uh, maybe we. I'm not singing either, but some other, some other deal. <laughs> you, you can be your own man. That that works for me. That's right. I, I like that. Yeah, I don't need to embody Mr. Three Hundred Five. <laughs> cool, cool. Not Mr. Worldwide either. But speaking of Mr. Worldwide, uh, I didn't know that you are working on improving your Mandarin and I know zero Mandarin. So can you give us a little a Mandarin for the victory Lane podcast? Oh gosh. I'm not working on improving it anymore. I'm just trying to work on remembering it. So in, in high school, <laughs> I, I took Chinese class. I used to be able to speak fluent Chinese. My mom in eighth grade wow. in middle school going into it, you can get a, a year jump on your, um, your language credit. I signed up for yeah. Spanish. I got to school and got my schedule and said Chinese. I thought it was a mistake. Turns out my mom uh, scheduled me for Chinese. So, Oof. Um, yeah, I can still speak some, so I can say my name and stuff. So, so I just said, hey, my name's Matt Tiff. What's your name? 
Davy. I don't know how to say that in Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just Davy. You can say, you can say, Wojow Davy, which is my name's Davy. Wojow Davy. There you go. You know Chinese. Look at that. Wow. This has been the greatest episode of all because I learned another language. Thank you, Matt. Wow. That's right. Knowledge. It wasn't like the the more you know. Yes, the more you know. Exactly. <laughs> the rainbow above your head there. Yeah, I know. I'll get you out of here with one racing question. Um, okay. We obviously all w- wish you the best of luck going on with this season. It's going to be fun to see how you as well as the other new teams are going to acclimate themselves to, to everything here in 2021. You know, where do you see yourself five years from now, 10 years from now, do you have a timeline in terms of when you want to be competing for a playoff spot, winning multiple races a year, being championship contenders? Do you have a timeline of any of that? Or are you going to kind of just see how it comes? Well, of course, um, you would like to put a, a strict timeline in there of what you'd want to do. You know, I did that with my own racing career. Um, the big thing that changes is with the next gen car, we don't know how equal the field would be. So that's the only mm-hmm. wrench in there for giving you what we'd like to be. We, we know what we'd like to be, but that's the one variable that we don't know what it's going to look like. Um, with that being said, you know, five years from now, I think we want to be a consistent top 25 car, um, hopefully a top 20 car in there. But I think a model like front row is a good one to look at to see where they're mm-hmm. at now and be able to um, build a relationship with Ford and our partners to be able to be at that level. Um, I, I really look at the 15 year point to be um, like an RCR to where we maybe have the shot to go win some surprise races and be competitive. Um, not, you know, uh, not the highest funding, but, you know, certainly in a great place. And I think if you look past that 20 to 30 years down the road, then you put yourself in a spot to where, um, you know, that you could be a championship contending team. And I really think that's where we look at that is being able to build it over a series of years. And um, of course that could be two years from now, if we have the right situation with the next gen car and have a partner come in, you never know what happens. But I think, um, you know, with, if you look at it in a systematic, um, you know, approach of what we do over the next, um, every year, it's always finding partners, um, getting good manufacturer relationship. And the more you build those things, the faster you go. 2045 cup series champs live fast motorsports. Let's, let's put pen to paper right now. <laughs> I'll take it sooner. The better, right? That's right. Yeah. Heck Yeah. <laughs> cool well matt this has been fun uh very informative learned a lot here today learned some chinese learned some facts about the keto diet and epilepsy so uh i thank you for that it's been fun catching up with you it's been too long but we wish you the best of luck this year and we'll be seeing you in daytona should be awesome fun. all right thanks man appreciate you having me on and we're back Whew. a lot of stuff that we covered there but well worth your time i think selfishly I really enjoyed that chat with Matt. As I said, we, we touched on some serious topics, but ones that needed to be touched on, as well as some fun ones here and there, and just learning a little bit more about why now? Why is this the right time to get into ownership at 24 years old for him? And could driving be in the cards for him down the road? He said they have internal conversations about that happening at LiveFast, so stay tuned on that. But for now, he's focused on the business aspect of running this team as best as they possibly can for this year, heading into next year with the next-gen car, and for years and years to come. Not lug nuts yet, because we got a race to preview, party people! Yes, we made it. The Bush Clash at Daytona. I cannot wait. It's this Tuesday night on Fox Sports 1. I am very happy to say that I'm actually going to be on site for the race and all the action throughout Speed Weeks. Pray to any God you believe in 
that rain cooperates with us this year because I do not want another headache of trying to rebook my stuff for Monday after last year. I'm going to be there on behalf of frontstretch.com, of course, back with them for another year. Thankful to Tom Bowles and the staff over there for entrusting me to help spearhead their coverage on the multimedia side of things this year, and we'll get it going in Daytona this year as well. It's going to be fun. So you might be saying to yourself, who's in the clash this year? Well, I'm glad you asked. Poll winners, clash winners, race winners, playoff drivers, stage winners from last year, of course, Daytona 500 winners. Daytona 500 pole winners who competed full-time in 2020. And if you counted all those people, you have probably around 2024 eligible drivers. Jimmy Johnson, Clint Boyer, and Matt Kenseth are three that are eligible, but they're not going to be competing. Obviously, Jimmy's in IndyCar now. Clint's in the broadcast booth. will be calling the race. And Matt Kenseth is back in Wisconsin eating some cheese curds and freezing his patootie off on a snowmobile in Wisconsin. So... That is what we have in terms of the field, and I also want to point out that it's not been confirmed, but it's being rumored, and anything that Bob Pockris says is going to happen will probably happen. Ty Dillon is actually going to compete for 23-11 racing in this event. He's eligible because he won a stage last year at the Charlotte Roval, so that'll be something to watch until it becomes official. Tony Stewart also said that he wanted to race in this event, but I guess he was just ghosted by NASCAR, the sanctioning body themselves, which kind of blows my mind. I, no word than that other than oof. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, look up Jenna Fryer's article in the Associated Press talking about the Eldora date, um, conflicting with Bristol Dirt, why Tony removed that from the NASCAR Truck Series schedule, and how he basically just got ghosted from them when he wanted to run the Clash. This is going to be on the 14-turn, 3.61-mile road course at Daytona. 43rd annual clash. It's going to be 35 laps. Stage one ends on lap 15. Part of me thinks that's actually too long because the road course at Daytona, they have long lap times, but that's neither here nor there. Again, Tuesday night, Fox Sports 1. Chase Elliott obviously is the odds on favorite to win at plus 175. Martin Truex Jr., second best odds at plus 300. Those two are going to be the top two odds getters for every single road course this year, seven of them. So get used to hearing those odds. I mean, not going out on a limb here, but I think Chase is probably going to win the race. <laughs> He's the defending champ for a reason and kicks ass on road courses. So I know, cr crazy declaration there, right? But be sure to tune in Tuesday night. Fox Sports 1 racing season is here. Lug nuts of the week. Cue that funky music, white boy. I don't even have it in my notes, but we were talking about the road course, and it made me remember Rolex 24 happened. <laughs> Wayne Taylor Racing obviously won the DPI class for, <laughs> I don't even know what year in a row this is, but they won it again. Philippe Albuquerque, Elio Castroneves, Jordan Taylor, all the crew over there, they did a heck of a job. Jimmy Johnson's number 48 ally, Cadillac, they actually finished second in class. Um, Kevin Magnuson with Chip Ganassi Racing. They had a late tire go down, but they were in contention for the win as well. Uh, great Rolex 24, as always. I enjoyed watching that. Denny Hamlin and FedEx have signed a multi-year extension with Joe Gibbs Racing. Terms of that deal were undisclosed. Some people were surprised that he didn't go to 2311, but I knew he was going to stay there for the long haul. Tate Fogelman's going to return to Young's Motorsports full-time for 2021. Jesse Love's going to run eight Arca Menard Series events for Venturini Motorsports and one Arca East event at Dover while remaining full-time with Bill McAnally Racing out on the West Coast. 
Daytona is going to allow around 30,000 fans for the Daytona 500. Tyler Hill is going to run nine races in the Truck Series for Hill Motorsports. Ryan Huff is going to drive the 83 CMI Motorsports entry in the Truck Series on a, on a limited basis starting at Daytona. Martins Motorsports confirmed that they're going to be full-time in Xfinity this year. Some sponsorship renewals, U.S. Air Force with Richard Petty Motorsports for two primary races, and Money Lion for Team Penske as primaries for Brad Keselowski and Austin Sindrick for a handful of races as well. Reed Sorensen is going to actually focus on the spotting for 2021 on the spotter stand, and he said that he will drive when the opportunity is presented. Shannon Roesch, who was at Venturini, is going to be the crew chief for Josh Williams in Xfinity this year. Danny Bone's going to make his Xfinity debut for Big Machine Racing at Daytona in the 48 because Jade Buford is not approved yet. RP Funding is going to sponsor Eric Jones and RPM in the Bush Class, just a one-race deal for now. Some news that came out this week regarding the Bristol Dirt Race. Heat races are going to set the lineup for that event. The exact format is yet to be determined. The Clash and the Daytona Road Course points paying event, they're going to have the lower downforce package utilized this season, as well races at Darlington and Nashville, which is previously reported. Truck Series Fields, they are increasing in size from 32 to 36 this season. And if there's no qualifying, if it's rained out, the field will be 40. Xfinity Series Field, they're remaining at 36. But again, if no qualifying there, they will be 40 as well. NASCAR said that they hope to have each manufacturer on track in late March for a next-gen car test at Martinsville, uh, and they hope to unveil the cars in late spring, and they said the development is totally finished, so hopefully they're right on that. They also uh, amended a rule that if a crew member behind the pit wall grabs a tire and puts their hand on the pit road, there's no penalty. Before, that was. It was a ticky-tack rule. President of Beard Motorsports, Mark Beard Sr., unfortunately, passed away at the age of 72. They said that they will go ahead with their Daytona 500 plans and race in Mark's honor. A couple more here for you guys. Motorsport Games is going to sponsor Live Fast for the first three races of 2021. Comscope is going to sponsor Daniel Suarez at Trackhouse, beginning at Phoenix, and iFly, Pump It Up, and K1 Speed. Those paint schemes look so good, by the way. Cincinnati and Freightliner are going to sponsor Kyle Larson for two primary races this season. Alsco is going to sponsor four Xfinity Series races for SMI, Vegas, Charlotte, and Texas. Sammy Smith's going to run six ARCA East races for JGR starting at New Smyrna. Love's Travel Stop is going to sponsor Michael McDowell for at least eight races this year. Jennifer Joe Cobb's going to run a full truck schedule with Fastener Supply Company on board. And NASCAR Hall of Famer Bobby Labonte will race in the Southern Modified Auto Racing Tour this year, sponsored by Cookout. That's pretty cool news as well. Whew, I know that was a lot of news and a lot of lug nuts this week. I've been doing a thing on Twitter where I just take a screenshot of all the news that dropped this week on a list, and I've been just putting that in my lug nuts. So I know we had a lot this week, but I hope you guys enjoyed all of it. And with that being said... That will wrap things up for the last off-season edition of Victory Lane. I know you guys are excited about that. Episode 93 of Victory Lane 2.0 in the books. It's come and gone. As always, if you like what you heard, please do me a favor personally. Leave a rating and a review. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast: iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, wherever. And also, selfish plug, after you're done listening here and leaving a rating and a review, Head on over to the Front Stretch podcast where we have a new revamped show format, artwork, 
it's going to be fun, and I'm going to be hosting that show as well for Front Stretch this year. We had Anthony Alfredo on as our first guest of the year to preview the clash and his rookie season in the Cup Series. So that'll be fun. Hope to see you over there as well. I will talk to you guys next time from Daytona International Speedway. God, I'm excited for that. Until then, stay safe, stay inside, keep washing those hands, and I'll catch you on the flip side.